In the consult, we discuss cases that are violent and sexually violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Consult. I'm Julia Cowley, retired FBI agent and profiler and former special agent, forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. Today's episode is part two of the Walika murders, the double murder of two girls, Skyla Whitaker, age 11, and Taylor Pascal Placker, age 13, on June 8, 2008, in Walika, Oklahoma. If you haven't listened to part one, please go back and do so. I gave a summary of the case, went over the girls' victimology, detailed what I believe the sequence of events to be and the interaction between the offender and the victims, as well as my initial observations regarding these events. After spending several months reviewing all the investigative materials that were provided, I traveled to Oklahoma in May of 2011 to meet with investigators from the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, or OSBI, the Okfuskie County Sheriff's Office, and the Oklahoma City Division of the FBI. We spent a lot of time going over their entire investigation. They also took me out to the crime scene on County Line Road. We walked back and forth from what was once the Placker residence to Bad Creek Bridge, passing the location where the girls' bodies were found by Taylor's grandfather. One thing that could not be captured in the crime scene photos was how quiet it was. The trees and brush that lined the road were very thick and muffled sounds. At one point as we walked down the middle of the road, one of the investigators lightly tapped my arm and motioned me to step aside. A car had come right up behind us and I didn't even hear it. I paused several times at the placard driveway and on the bridge, looking up and down the road, picturing what happened that day. We spent the most time, however, at the crime scene, going over crime scene investigators' observations and all the evidence they found. I wanted to make sure nothing in their investigation contradicted what I thought were the sequence of events. What I'd like to point out about criminal profiling, and you will hear me say this often, is that it does not solve crimes. But what I think you'll see, especially in a case like this, it can provide a better understanding of the offense, including the motivation of the offender, It can help us understand the victim selection process and the crime scene dynamics. It can also focus the investigation in the direction of the most probable offender. In this case, I believe the offender was male. This is just based on statistics. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, from 1980 to 2008, nearly 90% of all homicides were committed by males. The rate goes up to over 96% of homicides involving female victims. And there was nothing in this investigation that I saw that would suggest this was a female offender. I also believe the offender was local and not a stranger to the area. County Line Road was a rural road about three miles from the interstate and used almost exclusively by locals. As I rode out to the crime scene with investigators, I tried to concentrate on the directions, but quickly got lost. All the roads looked the same. 
I wouldn't have been able to find my way out if I had tried. I thought the offender had to live or work in the area or have some other significant tie to the area. The offender would be comfortable with extreme violence and would likely have engaged in violence prior to these murders. While he may not have murdered before, his demonstrated efficiency reflected familiarity and a degree of preparedness in engaging in violent behavior that would be unexpected for someone who had never been violent before. His prior violence could have included physical and or sexual assault, up to and including the use of a firearm. Furthermore, engaging in violent behavior does not produce anxiety, panic, or guilt for this offender. I believed the offender would be noticeably emotionally immature, selfish, manipulative, and controlling. He would become easily frustrated when he could not control his environment. As a result, it would not take a lot for him to build to violence. I thought that people who knew the offender may have been left surprised or even shocked by his reactions to any perceived slights. His reactions were very likely disproportionate to the situation. When I first heard the news about these murders, when I didn't know any details, my obvious first thought was the killer was cold-blooded. Nothing during my analysis of this case changed my opinion, and my opinion remains the same today. The offender has no empathy for others. Absolutely none. Skyla and Taylor were adored by their families and friends. They were great kids. Sweet, fun, caring, the kind of girls we'd want our own children to be friends with. But yet this offender methodically shot them multiple times. He then followed by shooting them both in the head at close range. The last thing I told investigators was that the offender was familiar with firearms and liked to shoot. At this point, there was an ever-so-slight break in the tension in the room when one of the investigators reminded me I was in Oklahoma. I sort of expected this reaction and explained that I grew up in rural Oregon, where many people were hunters and carried their rifles on gun racks in the back of their windows of their trucks. This wasn't what I was talking about, though. I believe the offender's interest in guns would be more obsessional than recreational. I thought he would have multiple firearms. We know he carried at least two in his vehicle on the day of the murders. People who knew this guy might know he always carried a Glock and a twenty-two. The offender fired quickly and accurately at his two targets, one which was moving. I believe to do so, particularly in a high-stress situation, required practice. I thought it was also likely that those who knew him knew him to be accurate with a firearm. And he may also have boasted to others about his shooting abilities. It seemed to me that guns would be a big part of his persona. A few months after my trip out to Oklahoma, in early August of 2011, I got a call one night from the lead FBI agent on the case. He told me the OSBI had interviewed a 25-year-old man named Kevin Sweat. He told me they believed Kevin was responsible for the disappearance of his fiancée, a young woman named Ashley Taylor. They thought Kevin could be responsible for the murders of Taylor and Skyla because he, quote, fit the profile. I have to say, and I think it was because I got the call so quick after my trip, I was skeptical, and I told the agent so. But he was insistent. My concern was they might be trying to force someone who wasn't quite right to fit the profile. That maybe I wasn't clear, or they didn't understand exactly the type of person I believed the offender to be. But I was wrong, and they understood perfectly. 
Ashley Taylor was 23 years old, and she and Kevin lived together in Okmulgee, about 30 miles from Walika. In mid-July of 2011, Ashley told her family she and Kevin were going to New Orleans to get married. When they didn't hear from Ashley for over a week, her mother reported her missing to the Okmulgee Police Department, who called in the OSBI for investigative assistance. The OSBI agent assigned to lead the investigation into the disappearance of Ashley was also the lead on Skyla and Taylor's murders. He interviewed Kevin twice about Ashley's disappearance. During the initial interview, Kevin told the agent that on the morning of July 17th, as they were driving down Highway 75, he led Ashley out on the side of the road. Kevin claimed this was the last time he saw Ashley. After he let Ashley out of the car, Kevin said he drove to Nichols Park in Henrietta, where he stayed until approximately noon. Kevin said he then drove to his father's house in Walika, where he made a fire and burned notebooks and videotapes. In his second interview with the agent, Kevin changed his story. He said he and Ashley left Okmulgee on the morning of July 17th and drove to Nichols Park. It was here, Kevin said. They got into an argument because Kevin told Ashley he wasn't going to marry her. Ashley then hit Kevin, so Kevin pulled out a pocket knife. He threw it at her and said, why don't you kill yourself? Ashley then picked up the knife and walked to the edge of the pier on the lake and cut herself. Kevin said he'd followed Ashley, and after she fell down, he picked up the knife, slit her throat, and threw her body in the lake. However, they did recover Ashley's remains from the burn pile at Kevin's father's house. The agent who interviewed Kevin was struck by how emotionless he appeared to be. He told me this was when he began to think Kevin could be responsible for the murders on County Line Road. That combined with the fact Kevin had a significant connection to Walika because his father lived close to the Plackers. I learned from investigators that Kevin was one of three boys. His older brother had died of a drug overdose several years earlier. He was employed in fast food restaurants. He left briefly for the military but was ultimately unsuccessful, and at the time of the homicides, he was back in the area working in fast food. Another key piece of circumstantial evidence linking Kevin to the Walika murders was that he owned a 40 caliber Glock. In fact, he had been interviewed by OSBI about it in 2010 in their attempt to track down every Glock owned in the state. Kevin had purchased it legally, but claimed to have sold it in 2007, prior to the Walika murders. All the information investigators were developing was promising, and I was starting to believe they may have indeed identified the offender. However, I became convinced when they directed me to a website where Kevin had posted photos of himself. One was a profile shot, with Kevin staring off into the distance trying to look as if he was thinking about something very important. My first thought was this young man thinks a lot about himself. It was three other photos, though, that convinced me they had the right person. In each, Kevin was posing with guns. One in particular caught my attention. He was sitting on a rock, wearing sunglasses and a leather jacket. His elbows were on his knees and his hands were crossed in front of him. He was holding two guns. One appeared to be a revolver and the other a pistol. My heart raced, and I think I teared up a little bit. It was like my profile had been captured in these photos. Other materials posted on the website, as well as journals, notebooks, and interviews with family members, depicted a person obsessed with violence and guns. 
Kevin's father told investigators that Kevin would target practice on his property, so they conducted a search and located several shell casings and sent them to the lab. I couldn't sleep that night waiting for the results. The next morning, the FBI agent called and told me they were a match. The shell casings found on Kevin's father's property matched those found at the crime scene. An FBI trace showed that the gun owned by Kevin had been previously the property of the Baltimore Police Department. Surprisingly, they had maintained a shell casing that had been fired from it, and the OSBI was able to determine it matched the shell casings found at the crime scene and at Kevin's father's house. Kevin had been charged with Ashley's murder, so he was being held in jail. This had given investigators time to gather additional evidence against him prior to attempting to interview him about the murders of Taylor and Skyla. They asked me to construct an interview strategy for Kevin. As I had noted in the unknown offender profile, Kevin was extremely self-centered, and I now had the evidence to back it up. All his writings, online postings, and artwork were self-focused. The emotion that he did exhibit appeared insincere. For example, when his brother died, he wrote about his sadness, but then complained about all the food their friends had delivered, even typing LOL. While he was being held for Ashley's murder, he wrote letters to his mother. He showed no remorse for what he had done to Ashley and avoided responsibility for his actions. In some of his writings, he wrote, Ash was too focused on what she wanted. If it weren't for her damn mental problems. And, I'm better off not being with her. In four pages of writing, he barely referenced her. She was the one dead, and all he could think about was moving on with his life and what he wanted for his life and what foods he was missing out on. He was very emotionally immature. He killed his girlfriend, burned her, and he was debating about what he missed more, red lobster or buffalo wild wings. Another great source of information about Kevin were his jail calls. Although they are warned their calls are recorded, most inmates forget and say things they shouldn't. In one call with his mother, she warns Kevin he is going to be charged with the murders of Taylor and Skyla. Kevin's callous response to hearing this was, what is this going to do to my reputation? I thought the best person to interview Kevin was the lead OSBI agent who had already interviewed him about Ashley. He had a good rapport with Kevin and also got him to confess to killing Ashley. Because he lied in his confession, I expected he would also lie about Taylor and Skyla. I told the agent not to argue with Kevin or debate the plausibility of his story, which could cause him to end the interview. Just let him talk. I knew Kevin would be motivated for his own interest and nothing else. I told the agent, do not display sympathy for the victims or the victims' families. Don't even mention them. I've heard some people refer to Kevin's confession as a false confession. It was not a false confession. A false confession is when someone admits to a crime they didn't commit. Kevin committed these murders. He may have lied in his confession, but he knew things only the killer would know. Kevin said he pulled over and was taking a leak. 
He went on. I'm guessing it was mental issues, and I thought I was seeing shit. I don't know. Things. Monsters. He told the agent he panicked and shot the monsters, because they were, quote, coming after me. Later in the interview, he said, I saw them. They were coming at me. I panicked. Regarding the forty caliber gun, Kevin told the agent, I had it, like, in between my seats. My natural instinct would be to shoot. When asked about the twenty-two, Kevin said, I never owned a twenty-two before, but I guess I had one. I never owned one. I don't know where it came from. I guess I jumped in and ran. They were still coming at me, even though I shot. The agent attempted to clarify by asking Kevin at what point he used the twenty-two. Kevin responded, I guess when I was in the process of getting in my car. Asked where the twenty-two had been located, he said, I guess in the glove box. Kevin didn't know how many shots he took because, he said, he didn't keep count. Throughout the interview, Kevin acted confused, put his head in his hands, and said his head hurt. He claimed it must be due to mental problems or he blacked out. He said, all I can think of is a blackout, and I'm sure I could still be there and not remember. The guns used to kill Taylor and Skyla had never been found, and investigators believe Kevin had hid them somewhere. Throughout the interview, the agent pressed Kevin, and he appeared distressed, trying to recall what he had done with forty caliber. He struggled, saying, I don't know, I guess I tossed it, and, like I said, as far as I know, I sold it, and I'm guessing I chucked it. That's the only thing I can think of. The gun would be hot and stuffed. He claimed not to know where the guns were over and over. At one point, though, with his head in his hands, still acting so confused and troubled, Kevin asked about the forty caliber. If you haven't found that, then what? He then stopped suddenly, looked directly at the agent, and asked, Have you? It was this moment he broke character, perhaps considering for the first time he might be the one being played. This was a great interview. First, Kevin admitted he was on County Line Road on that afternoon, June 8, 2008. He also described the general sequence of events, that he used the forty caliber first, then went back to his vehicle to retrieve the twenty-two. Only the killer would have known this. I also believed he gave us the motive. He said he stopped on the side of the road to take a leak. What he's saying is that he pulled his penis out on the road that day. I think he exposed himself to Taylor and Skyla. Perhaps one or both recognized him, and fearing for his reputation, he shot and killed them so they couldn't tell anyone. Maybe Taylor was the one who recognized him, so that's why he shot her first. Or maybe she was shot first because she was the closest to him. We don't know for sure, and we'll probably never know. But what we do know is that Kevin is immature, selfish, manipulative, and cruel. One ex-girlfriend described trying to break up with Kevin over the phone. He told her he was going to kill himself and fired his gun. He then got back on the line and told her he was kidding and chastised her for overreacting. Kevin is the one who overreacts, and it's shocking and deadly. I'm sure it's hard for some people to believe that he killed two little girls because they might tell on him for showing his penis to them. But I don't think it's any more than that. I can explain it, but I don't understand it either. In December of 2011, Kevin was charged with the murders of Taylor and Skyla. 
he was examined by a psychologist who found he had no mental confusion. On July 21, 2014, Kevin pled guilty to the murders of Taylor Pascal Placker, Skyla Whitaker, and Ashley Taylor. In October of 2014, he was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. That's it for this episode of The Consult. On the next episode, I'll be joined by retired FBI profilers Bob Drew, Susan Kostler-Drew, and Angela Surser. We'll be examining a serial rape case out of Texas. This episode of The Consult was written and produced by me, Julia Cowley. The show was edited and mixed by Mike Aris, and the music was composed by John Hansky. If you'd like to learn more, please visit The Consult website at www.truecrimeconsult.com. That's www.truecrimeconsult.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the consult pod. Thank you for listening.